I'm glad you're here as we're teaching through this book of Isaiah. We have been journeying higher and higher, and today we come in chapters 52 and 53. Would you turn there at Isaiah 52 and 53? And today we come to what many scholars call the Mount Everest of Christian prophecy, This is like when you go to Gatlinburg and you go up Mount Leconte or whatever your favorite hike in the Rockies. I mean, this is, you come to the vista and you're able to look all around. You go, okay, that's where we were. That's where we've been going. I almost feel like, and, and you may feel the same way. It's a very familiar passage. I almost feel like these verses, and anyone who's read these verses or tried to teach on them or preach on them maybe feels this way. You, you don't so much read, these verses cannot so much be read as like felt. Like Moses standing on the mountain, I almost feel like we need to remove spiritually, we need to take off our shoes. We need to remove our sandals spiritually because the place in Scripture where we're standing is holy ground. Here it is revealed. In the fourth servant song, they call these songs of the servant. We've had three. This is the fourth and final. Now now it's finally revealed at last how. How can a fair God, how can a just God take the cup of wrath, we talked about last week, how can he take the cup of wrath out of the hand of his children Israel? How can he do that? Is he just going to sweep sin under the rug? I mean, they've been in exile for, for 70 years, but that doesn't make up for generations upon generations of sin going all the way back to Adam. How is that fair? Did God just, so like, does God punish some people but not other people? Is he going to punish the Babylonians but not the children of Israel for their sin? Does God just want to save certain kinds of people, not everybody? Like, how is he going to deal with sin? How do you take the cup of wrath and just, eh, let it go, no big deal. It, It doesn't just go away. And here, here we see that the wrath of God did fall, but not on us. It fell upon our substitute, upon the sinless, spotless suffering servant. And throughout this message, when you hear me say that Christ died for you, you need to understand what that means. When I say Jesus died for you, that word for means instead of you. He died in your place as your substitute for your salvation. So start in Isaiah 52 verse 13, and we'll see that this is a servant song. It is a song. It's a poem, and it has five stanzas. Each stanza is exactly three verses long. And for some reason, it starts in Isaiah 52, 13. Did you know that the, the, the chapter and verse numbers are not part of the inspired word of God? These were added many, many years later to make it helpful as reference. Here's one that, where they really got it wrong. <laughs> uh, this should be 53, 1 because it begins the servant song, but I wasn't around when they numbered the chapters and no one asked my opinion. And so <laughs> we begin 52, 13, stanza 1. Behold, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. Didn't Jesus say when he was here on earth, unless the Son of Man is high and lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So here we have a servant of God who's going to be beaten so badly that it will be barely even recognizable. 
punched in the face, the crown of thorns, the, the cat of nine tails, whip and chunks of flesh gone. So that the point where, he, I mean, they blindfolded him and then punched him. Have you, you know, if, you, if somebody punches you and you see it coming, maybe you could roll with it or curl up or defend yourself. But to be blindsided, blindfolded, punched repeatedly, swollen, bleeding, bruised, so much so that when Pilate presents him to the crowd, he has to say, Eke omo, be, behold the man. Because it, it, it doesn't even look human at this point. Marred beyond human semblance. And in so doing, look at verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Remember nations, not just Jews, but Gentiles too. Sprinkled, that's Levitical language. That's like the Old Testament priest would sprinkle the blood of the atonement offering. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. In other words, there's going to be powerful leaders and nations Thousands of years from now, they, they, they weren't here when Isaiah wrote this prophecy. And they get to behold this atonement offering of the suffering servant. Stanza 2. The three verses begin in chapter 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I mean, I, I mean look. If you had told me that God is going to save through a mighty military champion... That would be believable. I could get with that. You know, he, he's going to be armed to the teeth and he's going to be muscular and this sort of Rambo-looking Messiah is going to come in and, and dominate with his power. We can believe in that kind of Savior. But this is a little hard to believe. Who has believed that we're going to have this, this suffering servant who's beaten to a pulp? That? That is our Savior? The arm of the Lord's going to be revealed. The problem is nobody's going to believe that that's what the arm of the Lord could look like. Who can save in this manner? Who can save in this way? He's not some strong, muscular military leader. No, verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. We haven't seen that root since way back in chapter 11 when it says the Messiah is going to come. He's the root of Jesse. Just a little, little shoot. He had no, look, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. External appearances, Jesus was not an influencer, okay? Jesus was not getting a lot of followers on social media. No corporate sponsors came to him and said, Jesus, would you consider wearing our brand of sandals? They walk on water. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're, so, you're so lovely and everybody immediately sees, you know. In fact, Judas, remember when Judas betrays Jesus in the garden? Remember what he tells the soldiers, how I'm going to identify Jesus? Remember what he says? The one I greet with a kiss that's the one you want. That's Jesus. Now, why did Judas have to greet Jesus with a kiss so the Roman soldiers would know? Isn't that curious? Why didn't Judas tell him, when we get to the garden, <laughs> you will know. Trust me, you will know. When you see a group of dudes and one of them's glowing, you know, he's got this halo, he's got this deep bass voice, and every time he speaks, there's an organ that plays behind him, <laughs> muscular and powerful, you'll just know. He doesn't. He says, I'm going to greet him with a holy kiss. Why? Because you won't believe. When you see it, you won't believe. And you'll look around and you go, why did we bring an entire company of soldiers for this? You won't believe it. He had no former majesty. Does that, let me ask you, does that offend you? To think about the fact that Jesus was not one of the beautiful people? I think that offends some people. I wonder if it's maybe because even 2,000 years later, we, we just still can't get our heads around the fact that God would choose to save in this way. We're still looking for this powerful military 
beautiful leader in some ways. We still think in the world's terms about how salvation has to come. Here, Jesus flips the whole thing on its head and said he came as a man of sorrows. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, esteemed him not means we, we, we considered him worthless. He's not even worth my time. Ignored, hide the face, to roll the eyes, to scoff. When Jesus was here on earth, he was, a, he was most comfortable with the poor and the wretched, the hurting and the broken and the ill. He was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. He had no problem hanging out with all those poor people who were sick and hurting. A man of illness and pain. How could, how, how could this be a savior? What, how could God do it? It flips the whole thing on its head. And now stanza three. Now we come to the center of the poem. Starts in verse four. This is the third stanza of three verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Sure enough, that's what the high priest thought. They said, well, you know, he's blasphemed and that's why God's punishing him. He's getting what he deserved. Oh, but verse five tells us, no, no, no. He was, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. See, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We'll come back to this stanza. These three verses, stanza three out of five, mean these three verses are at the very center of the poem. The heart of the poem. In fact, these three verses are the very heart of the book of Isaiah. The heart of the Bible. The heart of the gospel. The heart of God. For now, we move on to stanza four. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And sure enough, isn't that the case? When Jesus was standing at that mockery of a trial, that, 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 that sham of justice, he, they, they kept wanting him to talk. Well, defend yourself. What do you have to say? Don't you have anything to say? Stood there silent. Pilate would say, come on, are, are you the king of the Jews? Right? They'd ask him. What would he say? Your words, not mine. You, you're the one saying I'm king of the Jews. Incredible. In the law of Moses, this is a great reversal here. In the law of Moses, the sheep die for the shepherd, right? I mean, that's how a shepherd makes his living. The, 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 eventually, they, 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 they sell off the sheep. But in the gospel of Jesus, the shepherd dies for the sheep. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who even thought about it? As he died on the cross, who, who even thought, like, Jesus never got to ha have a family. He never got to have this, this uh, a great offspring. He was, he was, his offspring was cut off. I, I wonder if during Jesus' life and ministry, if the devil ever whispered, the devil ever gave him a temptation. You know, you don't have to do all this. You know, you could just settle down. I mean, the, the world might be in trouble, but you could have a really nice life. You know, there's all sorts of, 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 of beautiful, wonderful young ladies who would love to be, you know, they'd love to make you their husband, and you could settle down. You could raise a nice little family, get your house over in Cana with a lake house at Galilee. And, you, and there's great schools in Cana, and you can settle down. You can have a nice little family. Then you'll have offspring, and, you know, you don't have to do all this. What a temptation. He didn't just die for us. He laid down his life for us. Did anybody even consider the fact? 
In verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. This is incredible prophecy. Sure enough, Jesus was crucified between two thieves, and they made his grave right there at the place of execution. His tomb was not very far from Golgotha. And, and, and sure enough, it was a rich man's tomb with a rich man in his death. Do you remember? After his crucifixion, those two guys, Joe, uh, Joey and Nicky, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they come and they anoint the body and they put him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. A rich man's tomb. To add insult to injury, even at his death, he couldn't be buried among the poor people that he loved so much. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. Finally, stanza five, the final stanza, takes us behind the scenes. He wasn't just dying as a martyr. This wasn't just any death. No, no, no. Stanza five, starting in verse 10, takes us behind the scenes, and we see what was actually going on. There was a transaction. There was a glad exchange. The wrath of God for sin that we deserve was being laid on the substitute, on the spotless lamb of God, Jesus, and we were being offered his right standing with God. It didn't happen arbitrarily. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Have you thought deeply about that verse? Does that verse disturb you? Does that verse trouble you? That verse disturbs many scholars. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. God the Father crushes the Son for us in our salvation. John 3.16 says it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Do you know right now that there are people who say, that Christianity is the most hate-filled religion, that it's destructive, it's abusive. Why? Because the heart of our religion is a father crushing the son, and we have enough abuse in this world. We don't need the message. Do you know there are people who say that? They're deeply disturbed by this verse and verses like it. But not all theologians see it that way. I had a chance to speak with a theologian in residence right here at First Baptist this week. I spoke to an honest-to-goodness theologian. Oh, you didn't know we have theologians in residence here at First Baptist? Yeah, we have theologians in residence at First Baptist. Some of you are in the room right now. There are children. The kids are always the church's best theologians. And uh, I happened to be speaking to an eight-year-old boy right here at First Baptist and asked me kind of, you know, we struggled a conversation, couldn't think of anything to say. And so he said, uh, well, you, what are you preaching on? And I said, well, actually, I'm going to preach on Isaiah 53. It's a prophecy about how Jesus is going to suffer and die for us. You know what this kid says? When Jesus, he said, I've been thinking about that. I said, oh, he said, yeah, yeah, I know that story. Jesus died for a cross. I mean, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. I know that. I said, okay, well, tell me, what do you know about it? He says, well, when Jesus was dying on the cross, that hurt. Yeah. He said, but if God the Father, God the Son, and God the, what's the other one? I said, Holy Spirit. He said, yeah, God the Holy Spirit. If God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are three in one, I bet they all hurt. You go around the world and you'll find so-called scholars that can't do better theology than that eight-year-old. If God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three in one, I bet they all hurt. Now watch this. Here he's beaten. 
He dies. He's crushed. And then look at the rest of the verse. He's suddenly alive again. Look, look, look. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, or a better chance you'll see in your footnote, when you make his soul an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Suddenly he's alive and he has a family. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So, so, so 700 years before Jesus comes, Isaiah says there's going to come this servant. He's going to be beaten beyond all recognition. He's going to die. It was the will of the Lord to die. He was dying for us, for our transgressions, for our iniquities. And then suddenly he's going to see it. He has no offspring. And then suddenly he has offspring. Ta-da! He'll prolong his days. God has suddenly brought him back to life and he has offspring. Now let me tell you, was this not fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus? Let me ask it this way. Look around today. Does Jesus not have a big family? We're part of the family of God. He's got all sorts of offspring. And the Lord prolonged his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That means mission accomplished. He came to seek and to save that which were lost. He sought him and he saved him. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What does that mean? While he was hanging on the cross, there was anguish, but he had a thought that kept him going. He had a thought that made him obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2 says. And what was that thought? Hebrews 12 says, consider Jesus who endured the cross, scorning the shame for the joy that was set before him. In other words, as he's hanging in anguish and dying on the cross, the thing that kept him going was the thought of you being reunited to the family of God. You being brought back into the family of God. You being redeemed. Your life being restored. You being saved was the joy out of the anguish. That was the joy he would in the end see and be satisfied by his knowledge, meaning, of course, Knowledge doesn't just mean by the head knowledge he taught us. When it says knowledge, it means his, his knowing the Father. His relationship with the Father. Shall the righteous one, my servant, watch what he can do, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Okay, there is a, a great theological term here that this brings up. Jesus can make many to be counted righteous. That's justification. In other words, Jesus has this perfect transcript of righteousness. You remember the transcript, right? The, uh, the document that shows all your grades that get you into a good college. Well, Jesus got it. He's got a 4.0, right? I mean, he, he nailed it. There's the perfect transcript. You and I don't. We've sinned. And therefore, we must bear the punishment for sin. He takes our punishment, and we are credited as if we have the perfect transcript of Jesus. It's as if Jesus took his name off and put your name on the top. You have, you have been credited as having the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the big theological word for that is imputation. You have the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Everything Jesus did has been credited to your account, imputed to you. Uh, I uh, paid in full. Your debt completely paid. And therefore, no, no further <laughs> sin debt collector can come to the life of a Christian. I, uh, uh, we were on a road trip years ago. In fact, we were probably coming to Coleman, Alabama, come to think of it. We were driving from New York one summer uh, to come visit Nana Papa and, and have, have some nice family time. So we load up the minivan. We drive. And I think we made it as far as Bristol, Virginia to stay, stay overnight. It's a long trip. And, or Bristol, Tennessee. I don't remember. One of the Bristols. It's right on the border. And um, I don't know a soul in Bristol, Virginia or Bristol, Tennessee, but we pull into this restaurant. We're going to get some dinner before we hit the hotel, and we go into this Mexican restaurant, and we have, have, a, you know, have a lovely dinner, pile out of the minivan. We all eat. Anyway, at the end of the meal, I'm, um, I'm looking around uh, for the waitress to, to get our, our ticket, and uh, finally, you know, she kind of comes over, and uh, I was like, yeah, I, I, we're, we're ready. You know, check, check, please. 
And she says, yeah, um, so you're, uh, you're taken care of. You're all set. And I was like, no, I'm not. I, I haven't paid yet, you know. And uh, she says, yeah, I, th there was some other customers, and um, they have paid for your meal. And it's all done. Tip and everything. You're done. You're good. Hope you enjoyed it. And I'm like, well, are they still here? I mean, I'd love to thank them. I, that, that, no, they left. Now, my, my first thought was, how homeless did we look? <laughs> like, the, like, you know, New York tags, van full of stuff, kids coming in all, you know, beaten down. Uh, that was my first thought. But then my second thought was, that's, that's, that's imputed righteousness. We owed a debt and that debt was covered and paid by another. And watch this. It would therefore be illegal. It would not only be unethical, it would be wrong. It would be unjust for that restaurant to then charge us for the meal. Because it'd be getting double payment. It's not fair. It's not right. They can't say, now you got to pay too. No, no, no. You can't do that. Why? Paid in full. These burritos have been paid for. The bill is paid and it's done. The reason there is no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus is because on the cross it was paid in full. And no one, no one, no one can demand double payment. That would be unjust. And God is just. And because he paid it in full, not God, not the devil, not your old conscience, not, not the accuser, not the enemy, paid in full. See, that, that's what the righteous one did. He makes many to be accounted righteous because he bore their iniquities. Therefore, verse 12 the final verse in the poem, in the psalm. Therefore, verse 12. And, 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 and remember, does this not sound like the New Testament? The apostle Paul, who knew Isaiah like the back of his hand. Does this not sound? Therefore, out of all the humiliation and obedience Jesus did, what? God gave him the name that is above every name, right? Listen, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. What's this talking about? The spoils of war. In the ancient days, the conquering hero would return with all the, the loot and all the spoils he took as well as the captives, the prisoners of war chained behind his victory parade. Here Jesus, dead, buried, raised, ascended, and now he comes and chained behind him are, are death and hell and Satan and sin and suffering forever, chained up by the great champion Jesus. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. To intercede means to, go, means to come between, to pray for these transgressors. And even, even when he was on the cross, didn't, hasn't he always been an interceder? Even when he was on the cross, he wasn't thinking about himself. He said, he said what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And to this day, he makes intercession for you and for me. Now, in our remaining time as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. I told you I want to focus on those verses 4 through 6. So if we can, just zoom in on 4 through 6. Go back in your Bibles to verses 4 through 6, and let's just zoom in with some brief comments on that. Now, now you might say, by the way, before we get there, you might say, a skeptic might say, wait a minute, aren't we getting ahead of ourselves here? I mean, you've made this whole case that Isaiah 53, which was written in 700 B.C. or thereabouts, how do we know this is about the Messiah? And even if it's about the Messiah, how do we know that it's about Jesus? Uh, fair. 
if you've got spare time, not, not everyone agrees, by the way, that this is about Jesus. Not everyone agrees this is about the Messiah. Orthodox Jews who are right now celebrating the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, if they're hearing me, if you're watching this online, your rabbis wouldn't agree with this, and you should Google. Many people call this when it comes to working with Jewish people and sharing with them the gospel. They call this the forbidden chapter. The forbidden chapter. Why? Well, in many synagogues, when they come to Isaiah 53, they just skip over it. That week, they, they won't deal with this one. And if you, if you just Google sometime, what, you know, what do rabbis do with Isaiah 53? And you can, you can watch and you can watch some of their apologetics for how they say that this is not. Um, the, 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 there's a reason. I mean, un, until a thousand years after Jesus, about a, up until about a thousand AD, the Jewish rabbis all agreed this was a messianic text. So it's about the Messiah. They didn't say it was Jesus of Nazareth, they just said it's the Messiah. But then they realized so many people were saying, if that's the Messiah, nobody fits it better than Jesus. So they did an about face. Right around 1000 BC, a very influential rabbi said, these verses are not messianic. There's no way that's about a coming Messiah. In fact, some people went so far as to say, this is sort of conspiracy theory, some people went so far as to say in earlier centuries that um, this is so clearly about Jesus that Christians, after Jesus raised from the dead, Christians snuck in this portion of Isaiah. It's not in original Isaiah. They snuck it in later as Isaiah inserted it 52 and 53 so as to appear that it's prophecy. There are two problems with that conspiracy theory. One is, what do you do with the fact that Jesus himself quotes Isaiah 52 and 53 when he's here on earth and the gospel writers uh, also quote from Isaiah. That's a big problem. Uh, but the second one is the one that finally laid that conspiracy theory to rest. No one believes this anymore. No one believes this conspiracy theory. And it's because in 1947, a young shepherd, his name happened to be Muhammad, was um, tending sheep in one of the lowest parts of uh, the Holy Land. He was in the area, Jericho, and he was going after a little lost sheep and it, in this, looking for him in these little caves there, uh, down around by the Dead Sea. And uh, and so, uh, like a lot of young boys, he, he wants to look for his sheep in that dark cave, but he also doesn't know what else might be lurking in that dark cave. So he did what I would have done. He takes up a rock and decides he's going to throw into the cave, and maybe that'll scare the sheep and make him come out. And when he throws the rock, he hears the sound of breaking pottery. He goes inside to explore, and that, as you know, led to the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century, 1,500 uh, uh, artifacts finally found across 11 caves or a thousand scrolls nearly the entire old testament the largest of course the isaiah scroll and they call this archaeological discovery the discovery of the dead sea scrolls and there dated no earlier than 230 years before christ there's no way that these copies were were any newer than 200 so they were written before 230 years before christ or up to 230 years before christ and there of course they open and there's isaiah 52 and 53 staring them right in the face so no one makes those objections anymore. But they just sort of now move on. They forbid. They, they don't talk about it. In fact, if, you, if you're talking to someone, sometimes I, I've had conversations many times in New York as I'm trying to share this good news. God loves the Jewish people. They're, they're so precious to him. And, 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 and to seek and save, to send the Messiah and me, a Gentile. And so they say, yeah, I know, but you're going to take me to the New Testament. And I said, well, who, who's this about? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. They say, I don't want to hear about your New Testament. I say, it's from your book. I'm not reading from the New Testament. This is, this is from Isaiah. This is from your own book. And so many will just skip over it, the forbidden chapter. 
not wanting to admit the plain truth. These verses are about none other than Jesus the Messiah. He came to live and to die in our place and for our salvation. He rose again on the third day and has ascended on high and is one day coming back. So one more time, verses four through six. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These verses show us three things. And they're very quickly. This is Christianity 101. This is basic. We all have a sickness. We all need a specialist. We can all have the cure. We all have a sickness. We all need a specialist. We can all have the cure. First, we all have a sickness. That sickness is sin. All. Notice the pronouns in verses four through six. Notice how these, the first half of these verses start. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way. Sheep, you know, preachers are famous for making sheep analogies. Sheep are notoriously dumb. And I'm not sure that's true. I don't think sheep are dumb. I think they're just single-minded. So a sheep is focused on what? A sheep is singularly focused on the next clump of grass. Ooh. Right? And then what? And then after that clump of grass is gone, Woo! And all that sheep cares about in all the world is that next clump of grass. Woo! Right? Until what? Until that next clump of grass. Until little by little the sheep is so far away from the shepherd he can't hear the shepherd's voice anymore. And is lost in the darkness with the wolves and the scary things. All we like sheep have done that. You're not dumb. You're singularly focused on what you want. That's what the Bible says is sin. We've turned inward. We've turned selfish. And we're focused on that next clump of grass. It doesn't matter what God says, no matter what anybody else says, that's what I'm after. We've, turned, we've all done that. I, I know it's very out of style to talk about sin. Sin is sort of in denial. Some would say, uh, you know, I'm, I, come on, Tom, you can't honestly think we're all sinners, separated from God. All, come on, all of us have gone astray? Because this, this is what you want to say. At least I, this is what I would want to say. Come on, hey, I'm a good person. I'm sure you are. That is because for your entire life, you do what we're all trained to do when it comes to defining good. You have compared yourself to other people and deemed yourself perfectly good. Because not one of you, not one of you, and I didn't either, not one of you ever, when you decided you were a good person, not a single one of you, compared yourself to God. You compared yourself to the scourge of humanity that you found on Facebook or whatever. And said, well, at least I'm better than them. Right, come on, you could, right now, on death row, there are criminals who say, hey, at least I didn't murder 10 people. Like, they, everyone, compared to other people, our righteousness always, isn't that something? We always look down the ladder. When it comes to righteousness, we never compare ourselves to people who are holier than us. We compare ourselves to people who are worse than us. And by the way, when it comes to materialism and wealth, we never compare ourselves to people who have less than us. We only compare ourselves to people who have more. It's interesting. We look down the ladder of righteousness. We always look up the ladder of wealth. Well, at least I'm not as rich as them. I need a little more. We never go, oh, wow, I'm loaded. <laughs> when it comes to righteousness, however, we do the opposite. We never say, well, here's God's standard. We say, well, at least I'm better than them. At least I'm, of course you're better than them, but, but, but follow me. If, if, if this is God, if we want to have a relationship with God, and if God is in heaven, and heaven is a perfect place, then the only kind of person who can be admitted to heaven is a perfect person, a perfect person with perfect righteousness. 
Otherwise, if we all get to heaven and we don't have perfect righteousness, otherwise, heaven will just be sort of like pretty good and kind of like filled with sort of pretty good people. We don't need pretty good. We, we don't want pretty good we can have here on earth, right? We want perfection. Well, if that's true, if the standard to get into heaven is perfect righteousness, then we got a real problem because all of us like sheep have gone astray. We don't have a perfect transcript of righteousness. So what we end up doing is just sort of denying all this. We say, well, I, I'm not, I just don't believe it. I don't, I don't believe I'm that sinful. I think God grades on the curve, whatever. Well, the problem with that is 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. The alternative, of course, is to work really hard to offset it. And that, the problem with that is Romans 3.20, which says, For by the works of the law, no human being is justified in his sight. That explains, by the way, that explains all the finger pointing and the blaming. It goes back to when you were kids. When your mom and dad had you dead to rights, you were busted, and there was no way out. What was, what was your, your sort of last resort? But what about him? What about her? You, you should have yeah, I did that, but what you should see what they did to me. We're blaming other people. We still do it. Why? Finger pointing and blaming others is classic self-justification, and you can do it forever. I believe the, de the mathematical definition of infinity is the, uh, the human capacity to justify his own sinfulness. It goes on forever. So, if you don't want to deny it, and you don't want to just work hard to offset it, these verses show us there is a third way, an unexpected way, a way of hope, and there's a specialist. We all have a sickness called sin. We all need a specialist. This is basic. Sin is not going away, it can't be swept under the rug, there's no quick fix, requires a specialist to do a special thing, and that special thing is substitution. The word here is vicarious atonement. If you look back at verses five and six, he was pierced for our transgressions. Over and over, the Bible story is a story of substitution. The Passover lamb died in place of the firstborn. Think of it this way. Since the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. He died in our place for our salvation. You could say it this way. Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died the sinner's death you should have died. The great exchange. He takes your acts of wretched righteousness, your wretched acts of self-righteousness, and instead offers you his own transcript, his perfect transcript. The glad exchange. Remember how I told you you need a perfect transcript of righteousness to get into heaven? Well, that's what you have. You will stand before God one day and he will let you into heaven, Christian, based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He will judge you on his righteousness. I like my chances. Knowing that you will stand on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because your own righteousness is pretty flimsy. But you can trust his substitution. In 2018, you may remember this story. In the south of France, a, uh, a hero died. Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Belchram, he was 45 years old. He was a gendarme, a French police officer. In 2018, a man who said that he was aligned with ISIS hijacked a car in southern France, killed someone, burst into a supermarket, killed two more people, and took customers hostage. This police officer, Beltram, eventually uh, uh, was in a situation where the, 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 the gunman was holding a woman as a human shield and finally, to get a hostage free, uh, he offered, he said, would you let her go if I stayed in her place? The gunman finally was persuaded to do this. The woman runs off, she's free, and he made himself a hostage. Cleverly, he had left his mobile phone on a table so that the police could hear what was happening inside. 
Once they heard shots, a tactical team swarmed into the market. The gunman, uh, the bad guy, was eventually killed. But Beltram, the police officer in that firefight, was injured and died later. The France's interior minister said what we would all say. He died for his country. He was a hero. He was brave. He sacrificed. He took her place. There are many differences, of course. Uh, that hostage was an innocent bystander. Jesus took the place of the guilty, but you see the point. There's substitution. She was able to go free because he took her place. I love it when the Bible takes these truths and makes them like such a succinct nugget. It does that in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He substituted himself for you. It was your place he took on the cross. God treated Jesus like we deserve to be treated so that he could treat us like Jesus deserves to be treated. And last, we can all have a savior. We all have a sickness. We all need a specialist. We can all have a savior. Why do I say can, by the way? Notice that verse in 11 and 12. Go back to 11 and 12. He, he, my righteous one, my servant can make, what's that word? All to be accounted righteous? No, can make many accounted righteous. He poured out a soul to death, verse 12, and bore the sin of many. There's a cure, but you got to receive it. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, verse 10. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering. But what if you don't take this offering? How could you miss out on that? How could you refuse that? The only way you would refuse this offering, the only way you would deny it, would be hard-heartedness and refusal. To prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, go, go, to, go to verse 5. This is the very center of the final, this is the very center of the center stanza. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. There's an application for those that are not yet believers, and an application for those who are believers. If you are not yet a believer, how can today not be that day? You, look, you have two choices. You're gonna stand before God. You're gonna die and you're gonna stand before God. In that day, you can either trust that Jesus Christ will show up for you in that moment and take you to heaven, or you can trust in yourself or something else. I'm begging you, trust Jesus. Don't, don't spend another day trusting your own flimsy self-righteousness. It's not gonna get you there. Trust Jesus, trust Jesus. And, and, and make him the theme of your life. Can you imagine, can you imagine that French police officer for a moment? Go back to that story in your mind. Can, can you imagine with me? What if a few, a few Sundays later, they, they, they decide to have a memorial service and, and they're gonna honor this guy's life and you know he's a hero and he died. Can you imagine with me if the hostages didn't even come? Yeah, I had other things to do. This guy substitutes himself and that woman that went free, she's like, eh, you gonna come? Nah. I mean, I, I was gonna come, I had every intention, but then I got offered. My friends were going to the lake, so we just went to the lake and Instead of, instead of the day when we're going to honor and we're going we're gonna to remember what he did for you as your substitute, you, what's more important than that? Your kid had a game? You, you, what? Yeah, you know, you're busy. Or what if they just denied the whole thing happened? Yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really think that cop did all that. You were there. You saw it. You saw the witnesses. Yeah, I, just, I don't know. I don't believe it. Or what if, that, what if the woman said, honestly, I, he died for nothing. I could have gotten myself out of that. If he had just given us a few more minutes, we could have saved ourselves. You would say, don't, what if you were the father of that police officer? Wouldn't you say, don't you know what he did? Don't you, don't you care? Does it not touch your heart what he did for you? Can you hear God calling you this morning? Like, don't, 
Don't you remember? Don't you, does it not touch your heart that he did this for you? Does anyone care? Are you, are you too busy? Now, if, if, you're, if you're somebody, then when you hear that, you go, oh, you better believe I care. It means more to me than anything in the world that, 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 that Christ, the godly one, would substitute himself for me, the sinner. You know what we call you? You know what we call a person like that? Who says, that, that, has, that has reoriented my whole life. Do you know what we call somebody who when they hear that, they go, it absolutely matters to me. You know what we call you? You're a Christian. It means you're a blood-bought, born-again child of God. That's, that's, a, that, that's assurance of salvation you're feeling right now. When your heart is touched and you realize, I love him with all my heart. He did that for me. Those were my transgressions. The old Dutch painter Rembrandt, when he painted the lifting up of the cross, if you look in the painting, there's a random ancient Near East Palestinian with a French painter's beret, a Dutch painter's beret, because Rembrandt painted himself in that angry crowd. He knew. It's good theology. He said, I was there. It was my sins that he was dying for. Can you see yourself there? I can. And he died for me. He died for you. If you're not a believer, put your faith and your trust in him and if you are a believer oh you got to preach this every day who has believed our message to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed you got to preach this gospel to yourself every day i said it's christianity 101 but it's like 101 201 301 401 you never graduate it's graduate school it's doctorate it's this is everything i know you've believed if you're a christian you've believed unto salvation but have you believed unto like tuesday morning are you using the gospel just as your way to get to heaven or you, for all it's worth, going back to it every day. This is your way to get through a contentious meeting at work. This is your way to deal with your spouse. This is to know he died for me. He forgives me. I can, I can do this. Preach this to yourself. Because Satan, he's going to be preaching accusation to you this week. Satan's going to be preaching condemnation. You have an intercessor. You've got to preach to yourself the good news of the gospel. Faith is the relentless optimism that God is always up to something good. And that's what you've got to preach that to yourself this week if you're a believer. We're going to give you just a few minutes here, a little bit of response time. Our pianist will play and allow us to have some musical reflection. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? What I'm going to ask you to do now is ask the Holy Spirit to prepare your heart to receive the Lord's Supper. And so specifically, that means just asking him, prepare me, God, to receive the Lord's Supper. Specifically, it could mean confession of any known sin. You're asking the Lord, convict us. Uh, we want to stay close and stay clean. We want to keep short accounts. And if there's anything, the Bible says, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So think of some moments now. Let's prepare our hearts. who are receiving the Lord's Supper, would you take uh, the, the symbols now? And go ahead and peel back that top layer. It's a transparent layer that reveals the bread. We'll take the bread first. Kind of see it as multiple layers there. And when you're ready, hold the bread in your, in your hand. 
ponder his body broken on the cross. I'm going to read a verse of scripture, say a prayer, and then the gifts of God for the people of God. All is ready. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, that I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Heavenly Father, we ask as we, your people, partake of this bread, that God, we would call to the very forefront of our mind the memory of your body broken for us, that it was your body that was broken, your body that the stripes of the whip was laid across so that by your stripes we might be healed. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. and prepare the juice the same way. Hold it there in your hands and consider the, the price that love paid. In the same way, Paul continues by saying, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, again, we ask that we would be able to pull to the very forefront of our minds that great sacrifice you made on Calvary's cross, that by your blood, our sins could be paid in full, and that we receive your imputed righteousness. Never to fear accusation or condemnation again. Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Amen. On Lord's Supper Sunday, we uh, sing our benediction rather than uh, uh, have a spoken word benediction. Before we do, we've got one wonderful, joyful matter to attend to. You may have heard me say there was a baptism this morning, a college student named Kenneth Taylor. He was uh, then uh, requested church membership, as, you know, obviously as, as part of baptism, and so uh, it remains for our church to officially vote him in. He was voted in at 8 a.m., we'll do it again in this service, and then once again at the 1045. And so if you rejoice with me, you'll see his video next week, if you rejoice with me, in welcoming Kenneth Taylor into the full fellowship and membership of Coleman First Baptist Church. Members, we have work to do. And that is to signify your vote by raising your hand and saying, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. An overwhelming majority there. We celebrate what God is doing in the life of Kenneth Taylor. And now, Brother Chuck, will you, oh, there's his picture up on the screen. Well done. If you'll stand to your feet for our benediction, we'll have a sung benediction, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
Thanks, guys.